everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined again by our colleague at AEI, Robert Pondicio. We are going to talk about an article that he wrote for commentary recently called School Children Are Not Mere Creatures of the State. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thanks for having me, guys. Nice to be back. Robert, great to see you. So I wanted to start today by just asking you about that phrase. What does it mean that school children are not mere creatures of the state? And why do certain people seem to these days think that they are? Well, I can answer that question with a brief digression. Um, I remember so clearly the first time I heard that phrase, it came out of the mouth of Checker Finn, who I think everybody knows. He's uh, you know the, the, the founder of the Fordham Institute, where I worked before AEI. And I remember hearing him talk about mere creatures of the state, which, which as listeners may know, was a famous line from a Supreme Court decision from nearly 100 years ago in Pierce v. Society of Sisters. And that was the ruling. The background of the case was basically Oregon had attempted to outlaw private schools, and the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, said they couldn't do that. And the famous line from the decision was, the, the child is not the mere creature of the state. And the reason I invoke hearing about that from Checker Finn was because I never heard that when I was a teacher. You know, I, I was a public school teacher mm -hmm. for, for several years in the South Bronx before, you know, leaving to go do policy work. And it struck me once I learned about this decision. Why did I never hear that when I was a teacher? Isn't that an important thing to know? Um, th this idea that, um, you know, or, or just a reminder, you know, I've, I've said this so many times since that, you know, there, there were, I was told to be many things as a teacher. I was told to be an agent of change. I was told to teach for social justice. I was told to teach the whole child. At no point did anybody ever say to me, hey, Pondicio, you're a government employee. You're a state actor. The children in your classroom are not mere creatures of the state. Be humble. They have Be parents. Humble. And that was the theme of the, the whole commentary piece. They right. have what, parents, what, yes. They have parents. And what about the term loco parentis? Yeah, well, I mean, in fairness, school, schools are, and you know this better than anybody, Ian, having run schools and currently running schools, uh, when children are in our care, we act in loco parentis, in lieu of parents. Um, but that is simply not the same thing, right, as just assuming we have that, that they are our children. I mean, I, th this is maybe a bad example, but I think it kind of says something about the culture of education. We've all done this, right, Ian? We refer to the kids in our school and in our class as, quote, my kids. And, and it goes uncorrected. Nobody ever says, um, dude, they're not your kids. <laughs> right. But what seems to be happening is that people are taking the concept of loco parentis to the extreme where school administrators, and you go into this in the piece, seem to think that they know better around a whole range of issues related to their kids. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, what, what I've observed is, is um, and why, I, you know, I'm not just making sport of saying, you know, why did I never hear this as a teacher? I, I think a case could be made, I've tried to make the case, that public education is kind of quietly relitigating this idea and, and assuming powers for itself and, and control over children that um, both Supreme Court decisions and and you know many, many decades or centuries of tradition say that schools don't have. I don't want to suggest that schools are deliberately challenging um, the ideas uh, that, that the child is not the mere creature of the state. But in practice, you can point to any number of, of practices and policies 
uh, that again, you know, schools and teachers are just assuming a permission structure or authority over kids that they probably really shouldn't be. So one of the things you talk about is the focus on social emotional learning. Uh, and another thing you talk about, and you know, we should definitely get into this is the issue of a child's, you know, gender that they identify as, and the fact that schools are in some cases trying to keep these things uh, actually secret from parents because they think they know better than parents about how to best serve and even protect these children. So can you talk about kind of where those fall in terms of the line, the legal line that you think has been drawn? Yeah. And, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a lawyer. So, I mean, this is really a discussion for an attorney, but as a teacher and policy analyst, I'm kind of fascinated by this. The transgender guidance that states are issuing to schools is probably where you see this in its sharpest relief. I use the example of New Jersey, although they're not the only state that says that schools do not have an affirmative duty. And I think that's the phrase from the New Jersey guidance. They don't have the, the, the active duty to inform parents when their children are going by a different name or pronoun in school. Other states, you know, do it differently. They set an age limit, you know, like a child uh, in high school, but uh, before high school has to be, there has to be a parental notification after that, not so much. So you're going to get some difference from state to state. But, um, you know, it's, this to me is is clear evidence that schools are, again, assuming a permission structure that they probably don't have and putting the decision in the hands literally of children to decide whether their parents get to know um, that they're going by a different name or gender identity in in schools. And look, I mean, I, I shouldn't assume, we shouldn't assume that this is ill-intended. You could have good people who earnestly believe that gender children are at particular risk of self-harm. So, you know, if, if the parent is not okay with this, well, then we are doing right by the child by, you know, protecting their interests here. But as, as one lawyer I spoke to in the piece uh, said, you know, quite clearly, like, look, we already have a mechanism for this. Teachers are mandated reporters. If you fear that a child is in danger at home, you don't make this decision unilaterally. You call ACS, you call the authorities. And just think about the practical implications, right? So let's say you're an 11-year-old child and you're Sam, but you really want to be known as Samantha and you don't want your parents to know, but you go to your teacher (laughs) and and you say this and, and and basically... Everyone in the school community is now calling you Samantha, your classmates, your teacher, the principal. The only person that doesn't know is your parent. Don't you think at some point the parent is going to find out? And what does that do in terms of the relationship between uh, parent and school? Like it doesn't even 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 just pragmatically, the whole idea of parents not giving consent, permission, it's going to ultimately hurt the child, I think. What do you think? I think that's right. You know, and no surprise, you and I agree on this, Ian. I mean, because we have been in that we've managed those relationships, right, professionally between you know teachers and students. We've been teachers and whatnot. So I, I agree with you. I can't conceive of how you come back from that. Because look, you know, under FERPA, you know, which is which is federal law. I mean, this is the other thing I can't wrap my head around. How do you conceivably think that you can keep this? from parents. Under FERPA, parents are are given broad, almost, you know, um, uh, uh, complete rights to to review any record that that a school has about their child. So the most basic bit of information in a school record is a child's name and gender. So unless you're going to suggest that there are schools that are going to keep two sets of books, so to speak, which sounds, you know, like intent to defraud, maybe this is just a fiction 
but it seems that the only thing that it can do is 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 damage trust uh, between parents and schools. Well, the inconsistencies here are incredible. I mean, I was actually interested in the the FERPA part of your article. It's the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. One of the first times I remember hearing about FERPA was actually when I was in college. And a lot of colleges have this sort of point of contention with parents. Um, There were a number of tragic cases, I don't know how many years ago I'm thinking about now, where, uh, you know, students, you know, either committed suicide or came close to doing it. And the college was well aware of the student's mental state, but told parents that they could not tell parents about this because of FERPA. So I understand. So FERPA is, uh, you know, you you mentioned that it's supposed to be that the parents are supposed to be able to access all of these records as long as the children are minors. Yes. But, But FERPA seems a little bit like HIPAA in the sense that it's sort of taken on this life of its own and people have this sort of mythology around what it's supposed to do that doesn't actually reflect what it's supposed to do. No, I think that's right. And and also FERPA, the right goes to the child, so to speak, at 18. So if you're talking mm-hmm. about college students, they are the, the the stakeholder, as it were, in FERPA. But when they're minors, what I find odd, and honestly, I'm working on a piece about this right now because I'm trying to get an answer to this very question, Naomi, because you 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 hear some transgender activists, and and it's even in some state uh, regulations or gu- guidelines. I, I believe in Vermont, most specifically, where they're using FERPA to justify not telling parents about a change in identity. And for my life, I can't understand you know what 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 the thinking is there. We've spoken to a number of experts, you know, uh, who would, FERPA administrators who will say, no, no, that's that's simply you know, that that that's that's wrong. But I'm I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the fig leaf rationale is for for assuming that uh, FERPA justifies these kinds of exclusionary uh, notification uh, practices because it, it it doesn't make sense on its face. Well, right. the, the other inconsistency that struck me when you were talking about the reporting of child abuse, there's sort of, sort of these two uh, movements going on at the same time. On the one hand, there's a whole movement on the left to um, end mandated reporting by teachers and what they call family policing and to not report, you know, and, and to assume that the parents, uh, you know, know what they're doing um, and that we're over surveilling parents and reporting them too often for child abuse and neglect. And on the other hand, there is this movement inside of the kind of the, the the ideas about transgenderism that the parents should not even be told that they're so likely to you know hurt their child or you know emotionally or physically abuse their child as a result of this revelation that we can't trust them you know with any bit of information and I just find these two sort of movements happening at the same time um, very confusing. Yeah, I, I'm with you, um, and I do think that, and, and I don't, Ian, back me up on this. I think there's a, a cultural problem in education where we tend to, as educators, distrust parents. I don't mean you and me, but I think the yeah. field in general views parents with 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 a degree of skepticism, and, and that's not my say. So I think there's, you know, we have polling data that shows that teachers trust their unions and their administrators, for example, higher than they they, they trust parents. Yeah. So I think you know you, you have to kind of contextualize all of this in that mindset where where the professional culture of too many schools is is the you know the parents are either not helpful or or they're an impediment um, to, to to education. This doesn't quite answer your question, Naomi. But the most fascinating thing I found, and again, I'm not a lawyer, so this was news to me. In looking for parallel court cases, 
because these are going to come to courts, right? There, there are at least a dozen cases, active cases right now in the courts about these kind of notification guidelines. So you know, in terms of looking for what might a precedent be that the Supreme Court, if some year it, it ends up up there, there was a Georgia case, I want to say from 1979, uh, or from the 70s at least, I believe it was Georgia versus Parnum. I had never heard of this case before, but it looked like it feels to me like it weighs directly on this. So the case involved kids or, or young people who sued the state of Georgia over involuntary commitment statutes or laws, uh, regulations in Georgia. And they argued that parents were using or could conceivably use Georgia mental hospitals as dumping grounds for unwanted children. So in other words, exactly the same kind of dynamic that's at, at play here in these transgender cases. In other words, the parent does not have the child's best interests in mind, so we have to protect the children. The court right. rejected it. We now have 100 years of court precedent that said, look, even when we think parents might not have the best interest in, of the child, the court has ruled unambiguously the default mode is set at the parent is assumed to have the best interest in the child. You cannot uh, legislate assuming that the parent does not or will not have the, the, it's the child. Still there, it's still their bad decision to make That's for right. the child. So, but let's take this one step further because it's not only parental, so bypassing parents' knowledge of their own child, for example, of you know being called a certain name. It's also all the other parents. So there is a school district that I know intimately in which a, a principal uh, walked in with a child and said to the rest of the class, this child who's been in the class all year long is now a, a different gender and therefore needs to be known as a as a different name. And that was announced. And no parent of any of the students of, of, of receiving this information who now are expected to call this child by a different name, what some might call compelled speech of students. Yep. So this parental so the parental notification, it's not just for the individual child and you know knowing what your kid is being called or treated in school. What about everybody else? How can that insistence stand, do you think? Yeah, it's it's a great question. In my, as you were telling that story, Ian, my first thought was, well, how old was the child? In this particular instance, 10 years old. Yikes. Yeah, that's kind of young, right? I mean, that, that's another thing, the, a, a, a moving part that you did not invoke, but perhaps we should. I mean, this feels different for high school students than with elementary school students. Is that a fair thing to, to say? Well, is it? I mean... We have laws that say a, a you know kid is a minor until a certain age, which usually well, is... one one difference might be a high school student might announce you know this is my new name and you should call me this, but it seems less likely that a principal would escort them into the classroom and that you would have exactly. a instruction coming from a school authority on this subject. And and one of the big fault lines uh, in this entire debate, I mean, I'm thinking of the the so-called "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida, for example, which which kind of you know curtailed this before third grade. So you know, people become and reasonable people become comfortable or uncomfortable with these distinctions at different ages. You know, the the, the issue of age appropriateness here um, is is also uh, a factor. But that that sounds like an extraordinary measure that that principal took, uh, Ian. If it was if it was my you know what fourth or fifth grade uh, child, I think there'd be some splaining to do. 
I wanted to ask about the there. So, so obviously, you know, we've seen both, you know, politically and in the in the legal realm, kind of parents pushing back against yeah. this. Can you talk about some of the the lawsuits and some of the political fallout that that has happened as a result of people trying to move this line? Well, we we are recording this podcast on election day at uh, you know in in the early afternoon. So if we were <laughs> Recording it 24 hours later, I think we'd be able to talk a lot more cogently about uh, the political fallout. But I suffice it to say, I think there's a lot of folks uh, who are energized by these issues. There's uh, a number of parent activist groups who who are really, um, you know, you know, quite energized by it. The, the the biggest of which is a group called Moms for Liberty, which I just saw this data point just this morning. They, they are backing some 500 school board candidates today. So it will be fascinating to see uh, to what degree those issues or these issues of you know you you can whether it's gender gender ideology critical race theory masking COVID closures it'll be hard to separate these issues uh, but but there's obviously a rising parental discontent and there's a a lot of opportunity for people to 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 cast ballots and express themselves on on some of these very questions today. And don't you think, Robert, at core, you know, a lot of this. You know, just a few weeks ago, as we know, the National Assessment for Educational Progress released data on how our kids are actually doing in school. And here we are doing a podcast about all these issues. And the vast majority of the kids in our country still cannot read or do math at grade level. That's a fair point. We're 20 minutes into a podcast about schools and we're only now getting to student achievement. Right. So so shame on us. But look, I I don't want to be glib or facile when I say this, but I mean it earnestly. Whenever I hear somebody invoke this idea about, well, isn't it terrible that, you know, our schools are being, you know, torn apart by these culture wars, I always feel compelled to say, what what do you think we do in a school? You know, what do you think a school is for? In other words, school place, the first place our children go without us to learn, you know, what what works of literature, what history, what what art, what ideas uh, we think are worth knowing. You know, what are the values and ideals that we praise and condemn? Well, that's culture, right? So in other words, a school is not exempt from the culture war. It's we invented it for Pete's sake. You know, it's a school is literally an institution that is that is built for the purposes of cultural. So almost naive to think we can avoid these things uh, to the degree to which we're polarized about these questions. We, we can't avoid grappling with them as, as, as educators. Now, you know, one hopes that we could do it as grownups in, you know, in, in uh, with, with a spirit of kind of, you know, civility not have some of the scenes that we've seen in schools, you know, but, but we have mechanisms for adjudicating these questions there. You, you know this, Ian, you're a school board member, right? I mean, yeah. so, so you do this. Where I get a little bit nervous is, is where we think there's a, there's a right answer and that we can impose our will uh, upon this. Stop me if, I told, if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but, you know, back in May, for the first time in my entire life, I had to stand on a, a line for 20 minutes to cast a ballot. And it was for school board. I mean, you know, even in 2016, I you know, didn't, didn't have to stay in line to, 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 to vote in the presidential election. When I put on my civic education hat, I think, well, that's a good thing. That's exactly the, the proper vehicle for adjudicating these questions. Does that mean everybody's going to be satisfied? Does it, does it mean we're going to find some golden mean? No. And that's why we're going to have some of these court challenges as well. Look, you know, I, I'm I'm uncomfortable being the guy who says we have to do it this way, but I'm very comfortable with the processes that we have to to decide these questions. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that the some of the, the early court cases that you talk about were sort of came out of religious belief on the part of the parents and the family. And that, you know, those are those are folks who, you know, many of them are sort of not in the public school population now because we do have a large private and parochial school system out there. But do you think that there is room for for challenges on, you know, by religious folks who say, you know, these ideas are are so anathema to what I'm trying to teach my child that they don't belong in public schools that are trying to, you know, serve a broad swath of the population? Well, look, if you talk to the John McWhorters of the world, they, they will tell you that the, these ideas uh, are quasi-religious in nature, right? That we're almost imposing these religious, you know, re- the, the, the religion of woke, uh, as it were, on children. I'm kind of persuaded by that argument. It's a great question. I mean, you know, will public schools, what standing will they give to, to is this a violation of, of religious belief to, to teach these values in schools? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. I, I think the, the, the stronger hand is the parental notification hand. In other words, I think there's, there's a, again, 100 years of precedent, this idea of the child not being the mere creature of the state. If these guidelines are successfully challenged, and I suspect they'll be, I expect it'll be on those grounds primarily. Yeah. I mean, there's parental notification, there's compelled speech, but also just biological reality. I mean, now Title IX is coming into question two, uh, which was created in 72 to protect women's sports. But now the Biden administration wants to expand biological, you know, the definition of sex to include gender identity or uh, gender preference. But don't we think parents, particularly of parents of girls who are competing for sports, won't that be another area where we say, okay, you know, we can have empathy, but now you're literally trampling on the rights of everyone else. And it just seems like this generally is the point. While we need to be empathetic and try to resolve issues of an individual in that process, we're literally basically revoking the rights of almost everyone else within a school community. Yeah, and I'm the father of a, of a former D1 athlete as well, who owes her uh, college opportunity to her status as, as an athlete, uh, and and to Title IX. That's a it's a really good pointing, and there's almost no doubt uh, doubt in my mind that title. It, if we pursue these policies, that biological female athletes will absolutely lose opportunities, scholarship opportunities, opportunities to compete to transgender girls. No, how could it? Not? We've we've seen it already, right? We we've seen this happen. There was a couple of trans athletes in Connecticut, I believe, who who are the the state you know track and field champions in in their events. There was the the Penn swimmer, for example, who went from being a mediocre male swimmer to you know a world record holder um, uh, once she uh, she transitioned. So I mean, common sense suggests that yeah, that's not only is it going to happen, it's already happening. All right. Well, we want to thank Robert Pondicio for this dose of common sense. We appreciate you joining us today. You can get episodes of the Are You Kidding Me podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Robert, thank you as always. My pleasure, guys.